I've started beta testing this analytics podcast analytics software called Chartable for all of our shows. And one of the things that it does besides just normal metrics is it actually tells you where you have rank on the different charts. What did you learn? Touchpoint are huge in Argentina. Whoa. We have ranked both as a business podcast and a marketing and management podcast. Currently, we're number 190. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, healthcare systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information and have fun along the way. And now, here are your hosts, Reed Smith and Chris Boyer. Welcome to episode number 104 of Touchpoint. That over there, and over there, I mean, like up to the top of your map, I guess, uh, is is Chris. I'm Reed. I'm, I'm found down in the uh, larger uh, state down at the bottom of the map. Hey, Reed, how's it going? You know, Minnesota is a pretty big state, too. Just saying. Not as big as Texas, but we're a pretty big state. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening in. Uh, Touchpoint.health is the website. That's where you can find out all things Touchpoint, including the other shows on the network. I would love for you to not only listen to ours, but maybe uh, check out a few of those. Subscribe, rate, review, wherever you're listening to this podcast. That is still the number one way that everyone out there can find out about us. So we certainly appreciate the word of mouth. The more reviews we get, the higher up we'll get in the charts, won't we? That's right. Argentina. <laughs> so we're going to talk a little bit about user, users, user experience, usability, all that kind of fun stuff. All the use, all four use. Usability, user experience, utility, and usefulness. When you talk about usability and usefulness, I mean, it, it really is about making that whole online transaction or whatever the use case it is online that much better or more productive. We all like to do things online, don't we? Yeah, there's no need to actually interface with anyone in person. It's a waste of time. You, know, you go to the store, it's like, I just want to give you, I just want to make a transaction. Like, how does that happen here? Why do you need my zip code? And my email address. No, I'm not part of your frequent flyer program. And no, I don't want to be. What are we doing with these points? <laughs> what I'm hearing from you, though, Reed, is that you really want to make that experience that much more intuitive. You want to make it easier and you want to make it a little bit seamless. And if not possible, maybe make it online, much like one of our sponsors that is Loyal, because they use powerful AI driven algorithms and they call it Guide, that helps patients along every step of their online journey, from choosing a doctor to finding the nearest location or even signing up for an event. That sounds ideal for you, doesn't it? It does. More people should use it. <laughs> Whether you're using Guide's uh, chatbot, live chat, or the powerful combination of both, Loyal's engaging conversational platform integrates seamlessly into your system, maximizes efficiency, and improves patients' digital experience. Yes. And if you want to learn more about it, all you have to do is walk into the local store and sign up for their frequent flyer miles. No, just kidding. <laughs> to do is go out to their website. You don't have to talk to anyone. Just go out to their website, loyalhealth.com slash demo and request an, uh, a demo. They'll be more than happy to help you out. And they, and trust me, you don't even have to see these guys if you're doing the demo. 
But better yet, if you do want to see them and you're going to Hems, stop by their booth. They'll be exhibiting theirs, booth 4573. Say hello, check out the new products, the features, meet the team. Uh, and whether you do that online at loyalhealth.com slash demo or in person at Hems, be sure to tell them that we sent you. Okay. User experience. We know so much about user experience, don't we, Reed? Because we spent all of our time mm-hmm. in this digital space really focused on user experience. But do we really know what it means? I think so, but we probably should check the annals of Wikipedia. We should. I mean, we reference Wikipedia so much, I think we should be giving them a kickback or something. They're not doing the little drop-down thing where they want you to donate money right now. So So there we go. What does Wikipedia say about user experience? So it refers to user experience or UX, as people like to refer to. It refers to a person's emotions and attitudes about using a particular product, system, or service. It includes the practical, uh, experiential, meaningful, and variable aspects of human-computer interaction and product ownership. Additionally, It includes a person's perceptions of the system, aspects such as utility, ease of use. And that's kind of where we think of it more as kind of utility, ease of use, and efficiency. It may be considered uh, subjective in nature, and then it's constantly modified over time due to expectations. So let's break that down a little bit. So first of all, it's interesting how you clued in on emotions and attitudes. When we really think about it, user experience is a lot about that emotional reaction a person has when they're going through that experience. And it could be a positive or a negative type of experience. And either way, it probably will taint the way they see the rest of that experience that they have with your product, your system, or your service. It will. And so like a good example of like in-person user experience, you know, back to these frequent flyer programs, but I, I remember very vividly being in a store with my wife and, you know, the person checking out, it's like, would you like to sign up for our review program and receive 10% off your, t-? you know, and it was like, um, sure. They're like, oh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to do that. This is my first day. And so like, they're just like going through the motions, just reading the script. So immediately it's like they did everything they're supposed to do. Right. Or it, they, they served the experience as, way, as the way that they were taught. But now my attitude and the emotions around this experience is like, you know, what what are we doing here? That's probably why they get you at the checkout because you already bought the product or the service or whatever it is. And you're too late, right? You're already a customer. So might as well try to get you in the rewards program, which really isn't the right approach towards user experience, honestly, because that user experience can happen the minute you walk in the door. The second part of that definition that you described talked a lot about the human-computer interaction, which really is where the term UX kind of came to light, right? I, I haven't heard about it prior to it being actually applied in the online space. Have you? UI UX, right? I mean, that's just what, what we keep hearing about, especially you know around website design, like you mentioned. Um, you know, those are a lot of the talking points. You know, especially when we're going and building websites for uh, you know a client. Now there are guidelines around best practices around the user experience. There's approaches. This is like almost a science now about how you can develop your own digital experience so that it's aligned with uh, making a positive user experience, which I think is kind of cool. It is. And it's funny because you don't equate a lot of these things to be you know in the same category, right? So when you say UI UX, 
and it was like, you know, fill in the blank of what department this resides in, what would you put? The website department or the digital department. You know, or, you know, with smaller organizations, marketing, that's where this resides. It's really funny. You put one little letter in front of this and the perception of my mind at least changes from user experience to a user's experience. And so now all of a sudden, if you say a user's experience, now we're talking about that patient experience or that customer service side of the house. Exactly. And now that occasionally will rest in a whole different department, in the service department or the fulfillment department, per se, right? If it's retail. And in hospitals, it's the patient experience is really the owner of, I guess, patient user experience. Does the user experience person ever have any interaction with the patient experience folks? That's a really good question. In my experience, not often. I mean, they're doing the same work by definition. They're both working on a person's perception about a particular product system or service. It's so interesting when you start to bring the UX person that's on the web team or the marketing team together with the patient experience person, how they feel like they live in totally different worlds. But once they start to get to know one another, they realize they're, they are focusing on that, albeit in different ways, because using a website or using a social media experience could happen in different parts of the customer journey, so to speak. This, again, highlights or emphasizes the point that if you are hiring UI UX people, uh, within the organization, how important is it that they have healthcare experience, that they understand what it is that they're ultimately trying to do? I mean, this isn't just a technical role. And yet I hear often that the UX UI person that they hire in has typically come from outside, come from the retail space. Maybe that's our effort in in healthcare to really embrace consumerism. And we're going to bring in people that are f- more familiar with the retail transaction. So another thing I want to clue in on, Reed, is it's constantly modified over time. Wikipedia sums it up this way. In the end, user experience is about how the user interacts with and experiences that product, that service, that organization. A user experience expert really is a patient experience expert. So there needs to be somebody with the technical acumen within that patient experience office, not just within the marketing office. Or this is just another example of how those things are growing closer together. I don't know how the chief experience officer is supposed to deliver on that promise without somebody with the technical background that understands how the digital side of the equation works online. In today's day and age, the online experience and the offline experience are interrelated and they go hand in hand. Let's turn a little bit to some of the other U's. There are three other terms that are often talked about within the construct of user experience. One of them is called usability. Another one is called utility. And another is usefulness. And I think, I think it might be important for us to talk about the differences of those use. Why don't we start with usability? I found an article on Nielsen, and we all know Nielsen, right? They're usability experts. They have a whole website. The Nielsen Norman Group, or nngroup.com, their website, what's really fascinating and interesting about it is it's so plain. There's not a lot of images. There's not a lot of <laughs> yeah. colors. It's yeah. just articles and navigation we've seen that right even with email stuff you know we had the big swing with the html driven emails that it was like the more images and graphics and 
gifts and I don't know, whatever mm-hmm. else you could jam in there. Uh, you did. And now it's kind of swung back the other way. And those that have signed up, this is a good plug for our, our own weekly uh, newsletter. Uh, you can sign up for it on the website. Basically, it's just a text email. Since they are usability experts, I think we might want to pay attention to that trend that maybe we don't need all of those images and graphics and the little animated doctor that walks out on the screen to introduce you to the website to make your experience that much better. Let's talk about how they define usability. And they actually have some characteristics or components, they call them, of of usability that I thought would be interesting to go through. But first of all, they say usability is a quality attribute that assesses how easy user interfaces are to use. And the word usability also refers to methods of improving ease of use during the design process. So it's very much usability is about making it easy, the big easy button, so to speak. Yeah, the big round red button. Except they say don't put red on your website. Yeah, it would be yellow highlight. (laughs) I, I like the idea about making it easy to use. I think that's important. There are what they call quality components of usability that really highlight why ease of use is very important. The first one being learnability. How easy is it for users to accomplish basic tasks for the first time they encounter the design? So when they land on your website, never been there before, you know, and they're going there to pay a bill, how, how easy is it for them to figure out where that is or to find a physician or you know, a map or you know, whatever it is, right? That can even go to things like where, if you go to a website, any website, where would the search bar be, Reed? You know, that top kind of right real estate um, is where people expect to find common items. Or if they want, or like if I'm looking for your phone number or maybe your address, I'm just going to immediately scroll all the way to the bottom because surely it's in the footer. Learnability can get to the point, can go... Even past that, if you in your design you have like a, an area of your site that is where you're going to put the call to action button, whatever that may be, it may be where the phone number is, it may be where they have the button mm-hmm. access my chart, whatever. You want to put it in the same place because you want to make sure that when people come to your site, that they're going to learn where they go to do the action on that page. Some of that though is driven is industry driven. It takes a critical mass to get there. So like the hamburger menu. That was just a mobile scenario once upon a time. Well, now it's on desktop websites because we've gotten used to that's what I click on to get to the menu. I think you brought up something really important there is that a lot of times the science of usability comes from the fact that it's been used by a number of a number of users and it just becomes, you know, de facto. Like for example, recently you heard about with Instagram where they accidentally rolled out the new feature of Instagram where instead of scrolling down you scroll to the side to see more pictures and users erupted with outcries of like, how dare you do this to Instagram? Because (laughs) what are people used to when they're scrolling through news feeds, their thumb swipes up, right? And things that's how Mm -hmm. you find new information. You don't go left to right. That's not intuitive. Hey, we want to take a moment to thank one of our sponsors and that's our good friends at binary fountain. You know, as a healthcare marketer, it's probably pretty obvious these days how much time you're spending uh, on reviews, ratings relative to hospitals, physicians, all that kind of good stuff. You know, too many of those are going unanswered and they're certainly not being analyzed. 
This could be costing us new and current customers. It could be impacting our patient experience scores and potentially impacting our revenue. Luckily, our good friends at Binary Fountain have an online reputation management platform called Binary Health Analytics. If you'd like to learn more or even schedule a demo, visit them online at binaryfountain.com. That's binaryfountain.com. Well, the second one is efficiency. I mean, that, I guess, is pretty straightforward. Once users have learned the design, how quickly can they perform the task? This is where we get away from, you know, having super deep websites, I think, as well, right? Like, how many clicks does it take to get to some of these key action items? How many clicks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll pop? Exactly. You know, remember that commercial where he was like, one, two, three, and then he bought? Yeah. I sometimes wonder if that magic number of three clicks to get to where you want to go to perform your task came from that commercial. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly where it came from. <laughs> we just told people that for years. Well, we're starting to see it, though, happen more now that three clicks may be too much. We're seeing in trends in some of the designs that they're actually putting that functionality right there in the page and in a minimal way, but you're able to do those sorts of things. So instead of these super mega menus where you could pick everything but the kitchen sink on your website, you actually have that little drop down menu now and it actually gives you that functional things like little spaces to say, I want to blank. You could choose, I want to find a doctor, I want to find a location, whatever. That's an efficiency play. You know, one of our sponsors earlier, Loyal, you know, the, the chat scenario, the AI piece, it's like the better search engine. And so that's what, you know, people are wanting to do and used to do. And they don't want to look for stuff. They're either going to Google it and expect the link they click on to, you know, already drop them in the place on the website, you know, without any clicks. Once they hit your website, no clicks. Or I'm probably just going to do the little chat window thing. Because we know it's going to be more efficient for us. So the next characteristic or quality component, they say, is memorability. When they return to your website or design after a period of not using it, how easily can they reestablish proficiency? How easily can they pick it up again? And I think that's another thing that we're seeing, like with most websites, the, the whole concept around like a primary navigation. And in that primary navigation for most hospital websites, what do you have? You've got uh, services, locations. Uh, usually there's some sort of an about slash contact scenario. Somewhere it could be in the main you know, menu or just more of a hot link on the page somewhere or something like that. But some sort of a physician directory, physician finder, if you will. Those are the big ones typically. When you go to any health hospital website, you see that over and over again. Those are the what we identify as the top tasks of people coming to your website. And so if they're coming there and it's really easy to find it, really easy to begin, they could pick right up where they left off. And this is, I mean, you see this play out whenever you launch a new website. Oh, nobody can find the bill pay and, you know, all these types <laughs> of things. Because again, they've, you know, you've changed it enough that they've got to relearn some stuff. Makes sense. Fourth characteristic, errors. How many errors do users make? How severe are the errors and how easily can they recover from them? Some of that's kind of that traditional bounce rate type measurement. Went somewhere, oh, that's not it, go back. You know, that's probably the easiest way to measure errors, I guess. That certainly is a way to measure errors. Here's here's some things that drive me crazy. Like, have you ever filled out a form and then hit submit, and then it just takes you right back to the web page? How do you know if the form finished? So did that just go through? 
Did I <laughs> yeah, just exactly what just happened? And that is a really another way that you could determine if there's some errors. You know, people are expecting that they get that sort of submitted. Or how about this for an error? You go to your find a doctor and you just hit search and nothing happens because all of the the doctors that are filtered are down below the fold and you can't see it because at the top is all of your navigation filters and stuff. Yeah. And you don't know if anything worked. Mainly because your hero image is so freaking large. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, that's another pet peeve of mine. Yeah, but I mean, these are uh, all errors, right? And if something happens, like just this week, actually, we found out that if someone put an ampersand in a particular field on a form on our website, it crashed the form. It oh, didn't good. crash the form where it said error, please, and you know, re-enter this thing. The it just crashed the form, and they got went to this error page, like this weird gobbledygook error page. That's like a catastrophic error. There was no back button. It was like to a, a, a HTML error page. <laughs> Our team worked to make it so that if an ampersand happened to be entered in a field, by the way, that doesn't normally have an ampersand in there, it would return an error on the form itself that says this field cannot have special characters such as ampersand, greater than or less than symbol or whatever. That's a way to recover from an error. So the last one is interesting. Satisfaction. How pleasant is your site to use? Well, if I can count all the times people have told me how pleasant the website is, <laughs> how pleasant is it to use? It's awesome. It's just such a pleasant experience going on your website. We don't hear a lot when it's pleasant, but we do hear a lot when it's unpleasant. I'll give you an example of this. You know, with my chart, you're able to color code the buttons and stuff like that. You can create your own style sheet for my, my chart, which is great. We got uh, a request to say, hey, can you give us the colors that we should be using on my chart so it's branded, so it's closer to our corporate brand. Well, one of our corporate brand colors is sort of a mustardy orange. We decided, without seeing it in the context of the my chart, to make that our action button, the button where you can actually take an action because it's orangey, it kind of catches your eye, right? It just so happened that we also, the text that overlaid on top of it was white. We did not know that. Mm. Then we put it out there, and guess what? People couldn't read what the words were on the button to take the action. So we heard about that it being unsatisfactory. But it is. It's hard to measure because really you're only going to get feedback when people don't like it. Nobody's going to be like, hey, I just want to send you a note. Really solid job on the website. I've never seen that. Never seen that email come through through the website. <laughs> never. You know? Hey, was just stopping by. Just thought I'd shoot you a note. <laughs> Really bang up job here. <laughs> great design. It looks great on my phone. Give a thumbs up to the user experience guy for me, if you would. <laughs> like, no, that didn't happen. <laughs> so true. So true. These five quality components really are how Nielsen defines usability. And I think that if you start to apply that and think about like your design, and it's not just your website, right? It could be your email. It could be anything virtually online where you have the capability of doing that. And by the way, why not apply these same quality components to the offline experience too? I mean, again, it's it's really just one and the same, at least to some to some extent. So we know about usability. Let's talk about some of these other U terms. Have you heard about the term utility? Sure. And in its simplest form, it's does it do what you need? Does it have the features uh, or the site as a whole or the digital experience as a whole or the 
app or whatever it is. I mean, you know, you're using it. A utility by definition is, you know, it provides you or returns you some needed, I guess, functionality. I found a really great blog post by, it must be an Australian usability company. They're called Kintek, K-I-N-T-E-K. They kind of break down the differences between usability and utility. They say good utility and usability are closely related, yet they're not the same thing. Utility and usability are similar in that they both are critical in producing a good quality product or experience because that product needs to be operated easily and intuitively, which is the usability. But oftentimes, if you're building like a website or you're building anything online for a hospital, there has to be utility. Because in my experience, people don't come to hospital websites for fun. They're there to do something. And you need to make sure they're able to do that. So in its simplest form, again, utility is is really only concerned with uh, how useful the function is or the website or whatever, like we talked about. But utility goes through all those things that we just talked about. Satisfaction, memorability, learnability, etc. It's almost like you have to kind of marry utility with all the other aspects of usability. This blog post also talks about utility versus user experience. They actually were referring to a study on user experience that considers both utility and user experience to be concerned with functionality. However, user experience includes other issues related to the user. Utility is really focused on making sure that action that they're trying to do, the top task of what they're trying to do, is that much more efficient. Well, I think utility, again, is more product-centric. User experience is more user-centric. Those do overlap to some degree, but not the same thing. So I've read a lot of usability studies, Read that try to identify the usability of your website, and they return what they call top tasks. Half of them are utility-based. They're actually about doing something. You want to take a guess at what those might be? Well, I mean, I would assume finding a, a physician or a clinician would be in there. It's interesting. Those are the actually the top two tasks. One of them is finding a doctor where they know the name. They're trying to find contact information about the doctor. And the other one is finding the right doctor for me, where they're not doing a search by name, but they're doing a search by either location or specialty type. And like we're seeing now with symptoms and some of that kind of stuff. Yep. So that's one and two. In fact, the top one and two. Uh, I'd also put in there maybe bill pay. Yep, absolutely. Within the top five is bill pay, for sure. Uh, Signing up or making an appointment? Absolutely. Making an appointment. Making an appointment a few years ago was like around the bottom 10 in the most recent usability study. It's in the top four. So it's number four, basically. So I've gotten four out of five. Is that right? You have four out of five. See, what would the fifth one be? Applying for a job? Well... (laughs) Or does that not really count? Really, that's probably number one through 10. I guess I filtered out all the people looking for jobs. So gotcha, yeah, gotcha. you're okay. right. Number That's probably number one. That's a good guess, a really good guess. <laughs> <laughs> but let's think about it as like a patient. Like what would a patient, what do you think? I'll give you a hint. It starts with a my and it ends with it's a- It's like a patient portal type thing, right? My chart. Yeah. Anything related to my chart where they're trying to access their patient records, refill a prescription through the patient hmm. portal, you know, those kinds of things. People so, do yeah. that, huh? Okay. 
So when you talk about utility, that really is is really focused on that that that, that transactional nature, so to speak. But then there's another you read that we talk about a lot, which is usefulness. Now we're back to the pleasantries, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. How easy and pleasant is the experience, the feature, the site? <laughs> exactly. A lot of times people equate usefulness as being the combination of usability and utility together. It could be, yeah. Because you see a lot of times it's like, look, this would be great, but I can't figure out when the world, like how to use this thing or like, you know, a lot of times it doesn't deliver on the promise. That's um, probably more how we think of UX. I think you're right. I think UX is seen as being both usable and utilitarian or having good utility. I, I don't know how to say that. I think when we talk about UX as a discipline, we're talking about both. And I guess also laddering into that user experience as well. Boy, it gets kind of confusing when you get into the the weeds here. And we got really into the weeds. I think a good way to end this conversation is referencing one last article that I found, the three elements of good design. Anything that you design, it has to have three elements. Okay. Two of them are two of the use that we just talked about. Usability and utility. No need to beat a dead horse. I mean, it has to you know have some function in your life. And then the other kind of principles uh, around usability. How easy is it to use, memorable, et cetera. So uh, what's the third one? What have we not talked about? Well, it doesn't start with the letter U. Thank it actually starts with the letter D. Desirability. Desirability. Yeah. You have to want to do it, I guess, right? Desirability doesn't necessarily mean aesthetics or how the people feel about it. It's about making it so that it's much more efficient, so they could do it better, better than what they did before, better than maybe how they're doing it in other ways. So let's think about that in like in a hospital terms. Like for example, a great experience or a great example of this is online appointment scheduling. So think about this before, right? Um, many years ago, we didn't have online appointment scheduling. What did we have? We had a phone number that they could call. We, we had a phone number, and then that morphed to not not make an appointment, but request an appointment. You filled something out, and then somebody got that, and then they had to call you. You weren't, you weren't actually signing up for a specific slot. And now certain organizations have more of a integrated solution that allows you to actually you know, make an appointment. To actually make an appointment, not logging into my chart, but to actually look at that individual doctor or that practice, look at the calendar, pick a time frame on that calendar that works best for you on that day, and say, I want to book that appointment. That's much more desirable to do than the previous stuff that we talked about. That is very desirable. And what's going to become even more desirable is, is again, less and less from me. Uh, again, we, we look at some of the site personalization components, uh, AI, machine learning, things like that. That's going to become more desirable at some point because it's going to allow so much more context to be put around what it is that you're actually desiring to do before you ever arrive. They phrased it in this blog post as this, desirability should be how we can drive a user to take action through design, through simplicity of design. 
through all the different elements to make through usability, through utility, like we're actually making it easier for them to transact with us. And that's the goal, right? I mean, we got to figure out some way to create some brand equity that allows not only just uh, a one-way kind of advertising channel, but puts utilities in place that people want to use uh, and therefore, you know, to become memorable and, and have people return and, and interact with you on a, on a longer basis. Hey, Chris, before we go too much further, jump into this next segment of the podcast, I did want to uh, mention and thank uh, one of our sponsors, Influence Health. Uh, you know, they've got a consumer experience platform that, that covers several things. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we've we've talked about content management systems on this podcast. Yeah, we did. What about CRMs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we covered CRMs for sure. And then obviously each and every week we talk about digital marketing. So digital marketing systems, uh, you know, in one way, shape or form have probably been covered, right? That's right. Digital marketing systems. And I would say that we even talk about it in a way of uh, that overall digital consumer experience. Well, there you go. I, you know, I would, I would recommend for anybody interested in one of those topics uh, or anything else, they've also got some complimentary solutions on their website, but, but head over to their website, take a look at what they've got and what they're offering relative to CMS, CRM, digital marketing systems, kind of how all that is woven together in what they call their consumer experience platform. Find your way over to influencehealth.com. All right, welcome back to the Ask the Expert section of our podcast. And today I am delighted to be talking to someone that I just recently met, but I have a feeling that she and I think very much alike about so many things. And that is Jillian Penrod, who runs a company called Infotistas. Uh, Did I pronounce that right, Jillian? Yes, you did. Thank you very much. For those people that may not know who you are and listening in, can you give them a little bit bit of background about yourself? Absolutely. I have about 10 years of data management and user experience research, as well as master's degrees in public health and information sciences. I was lucky to be able to blend socio-behavioral research and library science together. Uh, In 2016, I founded Infotistas with the goal of creating operationally sustainable information environments for my clients. I also operate individually as a consultant for projects involving business intelligence and granular taxonomy solutions. When I look at some of your background, I am impressed and drawn by some of the, the work that you have done. You want to share a little bit about some of the companies that you've worked with in the past? A lot of my uh, clients are from nonprofit organizations, the Health Foundation from the, uh, from North Carolina, a few company and not nonprofit companies in California, and I've also worked independently for a few engineering firms. Uh, the nonprofit world interests me because I came from working at Drexel University, where I worked on their redesign of their research website. That was a lot of research to get a research website. My Experience in healthcare has mostly focused on public health agencies and nonprofits. As a data scientist, right? You refer to yourself as a data scientist. Did I get that right? It's really a user experience designer because that just seems to encompass a little bit of everything that I do as opposed to data scientist, where I'm not really analyzing particular subsets of data. The reason why you and I are talking today is because of an article that was published about you where you were interviewed around information architecture. Now, information architecture, or IA, 
is one of those terms that our audience probably has heard a lot about, but they may not know really what that is. Information architecture is often mischaracterized as a static metric or standard for websites or information spaces, almost like um, a biometric indicator where it can be measured in one way and one way only, and that there's this magic information architecture council who decides what goes where. I like to nest information architecture within the overall user experience. You cannot create an information architecture unless you have data on user behaviors. You cannot tell your users how you want them to connect to your services or product. They have to tell you, and then you have to meet and exceed their expectations. This requires Mm. a site information architecture that's a mix of user research specific to your users and competitive analysis of what other sites are doing. So it's a fine line between we want to do something that makes sure that our Users have a great experience. Also, what's the other company, our competitor doing? Or what are they doing really well? What aren't they doing really well in terms of creating a user experience? Uh, So basically, an effective information architecture of a digital space will anticipate the needs of the users, provide the seamless user experience, and that is the absolute goal. Yes, we're talking about navigation. We're talking about making sure that the navigation makes sense. We can make labels for things. We can confuse people with our language and what we say or what the legacy items we'll talk about or legacy sites have done. Or we can make sure that we do the user research and have the, the language that they use, the, the terms they're familiar with reflected on the, on the screen. We struck on something called user research, having managed a number of websites. The primary way that you could track some user research on the site is how people use your site. But is that all you're talking about when you're looking into user research? Not everything is going to be digital and able to be assessed digitally. One of the strategies that I like to use with my clients is tell me who answers your phone on behalf of your organization. That's who I want to talk to. If you can't find it on the website or it's missing or incomplete or confusing, they're going to call. And when they call to find that information, most of the time it's because of the ineffectiveness of the site. Yeah. And, you know, it's surprising having worked in the space for so long, how little of a connection there is between the people that manage the website and those people that actually pick up the call. And the other part of it is, is those people that are picking up the call, they certainly track how many calls they take. That's one of their metrics. But many times they're not tracking exactly what those calls are. So you don't have that quantitative data. In terms of finding out what is missing from the site or what can make the user experience better. That could be either a phone call or in-person sit-down interview to talk to them, a survey of how many times do you answer this? Um, if you could design a site with frequently asked questions, what would, you know, which ones would you include? And that goes a long way. And you can do that in every department. It's a bottom-up approach and people, people forget that. Any department that has sort of that customer touch point, like in a hospital or a health system, it could be the the person at the reception desk, or it could be the nurse that's maybe even attending a patient that went home and looked at something and they may have a comment about the website. Correct. Are there any tips that you might give to people that are starting down this path of collecting research of how they can start to to make sense of that data? Because sometimes that can be overwhelming because there's so many questions that people ask, you know? Designing survey instruments and research instruments that will guide you throughout the entire process. You want to know the functionality of your site. You want to be able to design the site around the user functionality. So what questions do you need to ask your users? So think about the last time that you got an Uber. So when you open the app, you're asked basic questions such as where you are, where you want to go, what level of service, and when. 
So you populate the fields, bam, you're done, your car's coming. Now, imagine if you open the app and you first had to see a page of press articles where Uber announced their new board of directors or added new drivers in Delaware or the CEO went on a humanitarian mission. And then you had to find the link to open to where you needed to get a car. Users of your hospital websites, and they're mostly on mobile devices, are looking to complete a specific task. What are visiting hours? What is the emergency room wait time? Does this hospital accept my insurance? Uh, Most patients aren't accessing the hospital site to learn about accolades or read a news story about the hospital. So once you wrap your head around the functionality of the website, then you can design your survey instruments and then make room to have those, oh, I didn't know our users really needed to know that or couldn't find it because we just assumed that they could because we know our website, we know our, our, you know, our hospital, we know our organization. One of the websites I helped redesign for university, their research department, they used all these different terms, pre-award, post-award, finance, compliance, and we were telling them, great, where would this item go? And in the usability testing, they went, oh, it's here. We call it something, but they called it something else. And so even if we insisted that it went here, it doesn't matter. So they couldn't find it, even if we put it in the quote unquote right place. If that's how they associate the content, we can't fight against that. (laughs) That's where they're going to go. It seems that many times uh, it's difficult to shift what you think is important from your website to actually around what your customer thinks is important to their website. Is that true in your experience? Fact. (laughs) (laughs) Fact. Now that users expect like this mobile first and app centric user experience, websites no longer need to maintain or make room in their hierarchy IA for unnecessary concepts or pages. So legacy information and information hoarding is a common challenge. We kind of talk about fear of missing out or FOMO. That kind of comes to mind. But a lot of organizations, especially when it comes to reconfiguring, they have this fear of missing information. So I guess FOMI, I guess is the... (laughs) Uh, So when you hold on to legacy pages or concepts, that's a really big challenge. And to combat that or, or fix it, I usually develop recommendations on how to preserve, archive, relocate, and repackage content. But again, if you're working on how to mesh different audiences, you have to focus on the user. The single user, what is the common user going to need first? The challenge, I think, sometimes with the people that listen to this podcast is that there's multiple audience. There is uh, the not only the, the patient looking for care, but sometimes the referring provider. Do you have any advice for them on how to start to understand and maybe even approach an IA where we're serving different audiences? To meet the content and IA needs, you have to pick one preferred user. Uh, you can build other things around that, your, like in terms of if you have a provider or in terms of an academic, but your main concern should be the user who's coming in for services. That should ground everything. You shouldn't have a third dedicated to this, a third dedicated to that, a third, de- 80, at least 80% of your site, the IA should be geared towards your patient because that's who's coming to your site first and foremost. That's the person who needs to be connected to care immediately. That's the person who needs to find out when they can visit their sick friend and they don't know where to go. It's simple things that we, because of being in the hospital environment, we want to make sure we have all this consumer health information first. We want to make sure we give equal space to everything, equal access, crowd the homepage with everything. That's overwhelming. And that's not how people are using sites. 
they're not using them like that primarily. Yeah, I sometimes call that the kitchen sink. Correct. Homepage, <laughs> I agree. Where with you that. put everything. <laughs> And actually, the article that I read that you were featured in, you called it the junk drawer. Tell us a little bit more about that idea. So the junk drawer is really where everyone, it's the other, the category. So on a navigation menu, you're going to see home, you're going to see news, contact, press, services, departments, patient, you know, you're going to have a laundry list. And then there's going to be basically an other category somewhere. It's going to be either somewhere within a mega menu, it's going to be buried someplace else, but you're going to have content that you don't know what to do with. Your situation, your co- your content, uh, the categories are not so unique that you should have to create an other category. An other category is the antithesis of good design. I thought you put everything in the footer. That's what you do with all the others, right? <laughs> And the footer's really long and it takes up <laughs> a nice half of the page. <laughs> and that's really about curating your content. Is your website supposed to articulate and document every single move that your business makes? Or can you use Facebook as a companion? So it doesn't have to be everything on there. And I think we kind of lived through this, put everything on your organization website, because if it doesn't exist there, then it doesn't exist at all. And now we're seeing social media campaigns and social media channels that are really partners as opposed to auxiliary issues or auxiliary formats. I never really thought about that before. I mean, that's really an interesting concept in that what you're what you're indicating is that our customers today are not monochannel, they're multi-channel. Correct. What you're talking about here, all of these things that you're talking about, Jillian, are fascinating and seem very logical, yet it's not easy for organizations to begin down this path, right? Correct. What are some you know tips or tricks that you might want to give to people listening in that might want to start down this path? So to truly audit for reconfiguration, you need to start from scratch and not work on organizing your existing content. Reconfiguring a website is not dragging and dropping existing content into a sleeker interface or attaching new headers in a navigation bar. We know this. <laughs> I like to use the HGTV show Fixer Upper as an example. If that team came to your house and you just said that they were only allowed to paint the walls and put in a new mailbox, then what was the point of the process? Yeah, Chip would not be happy. Chip would not be happy. None too pleased. He couldn't do any of his demolition that he loves so much. Audits must be based on user research. That research will create an audit instrument. You want to survey people who answer the phones on behalf of your organization. These are keys to how you organize your content and make your site user-focused. So the vision for the site functionality will materialize, and it'll be very easy to cleanse your existing content and make room for new and effective pages. And I did mention this before about repackaging your content. That's a great opportunity to say, how can we really, is this needed? Does this match with our user experience goals now that we know them and they're backed by research? To reference a different show, you're actually um, sparking joy on your web pages, aren't you? <laughs> yes, I am, Ricardo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to. I'm trying to. The way you describe it, it sounds so intuitive and so common sense. Yet, why is it, is it so hard for us organizations to really look at IA in this way? The biggest challenge is readying the stakeholders for changes to the status quo. You know, the status quo being websites that are the only front-facing digital representation of the organization. And we know now that's not true. 
because we have all these different channels as a constellation of the organization. So organizational ego and history can block successful and smart transformations of IA because it's not going to look like it used to for a variety of reasons. And that's why the user research is so important because you can't argue with numbers, especially with scientists. You can't present all this user research that you've done saying our customers want, our clients, customers, patients want this, this, this. This is what they expect. We need to deliver. They can't say, I think, I feel, I want, we used to. You know, These are numbers, this is research. And this is how you're going to evaluate your success and your project and your implementation. You know, and I think that working with a lot of our audience, many of them are evidence-based marketing focused. So I think they would appreciate sort of that scientific approach to that. Absolutely. You don't know if you, if you succeeded unless you plan to evaluate. Otherwise, you can say, we just did a great website. It looks great. It's super shiny. Goodbye. <laughs> how, do you, how do you know you did a great job? How do you know this is effective? How do you know this meets the user's needs? That's why the research is important. And it's, and it's very often overlooked. What do you think are some other trends that are going on in the sort of the digital ecosystem or how consumers or people are using digital that might be shifting the way IA should be considered? I believe that in the past, we used to look at IA, especially the navigation bar, which is the easiest, most palatable example as clicked for a function. Now we users expect those functions to be integrated into a single page. So mentioning you mentioned before about find a doctor, make an appointment. I noticed a lot of uh, hospital websites have emergency room wait times. That's great. And, and users are expecting that. They want integrated functionality as opposed to going through click-throughs. How many times do I have to click through something to get somewhere? Makes total sense, you know, instead of clicking on the find a doctor button to begin the process, click on the find the doctor button and just have that process available. Can't stress this enough because it's so old school, but the phone call part is is really important. Assessing the, the frequently asked questions. Remember the last time you had to call someone or an organization because the information you needed that you thought was pretty easy, that should be on there, wasn't on there. Was that a pleasant conversation? Did you feel good about calling them because they didn't have what you needed? No. The last thing you want to do is call somebody on the phone to ask a question that should have been on the website or presented clearly or, you know, be prepared to make new content. A lot of organizations aren't prepared to make new content or repackage the content they have. They're scared of losing the data. They're scared of losing the information. Don't be scared. No fear. <laughs> There's always the Wayback Machine. Yes, there is. Oh, yes. <laughs> we can internet archive everything. <laughs> These have been really great tips and really great examples that um, I'm sure our audience really, really appreciates. As they're listening in, they may be thinking, hey, I want to talk a little bit more with you. What's the best way for them to uh, reach out to you and get a, get a hold of you? The best way to reach me is at infotistas at gmail.com. And you can also look at my work on infotistas.com. And I loved connecting through LinkedIn, so please reach out to me there. And you can reach me on Twitter at infotistas. Well, thanks again so much for all your information and your time today. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Okay, Reed, we're wrapping up the show here, and I want to do a special shout-out, or we want to do a special shout-out to Jillian Penrod. 
she you could tell from that interview that we just had she, she can get down in the weeds like we just did in this episode we're talking That's about right. usability I thought that was some really interesting information especially after last week and then now this week's episode just talking about information architecture i think was a uh, was a nice fit very quickly, of course, I'll be at the Texas Hospital Association in February and then South by Southwest in March. So if you're going to be in the, my neck of the woods, both of those events are in Austin. I uh, would love to hear from you and connect. Before we sign off for the week, uh, maybe recommendations. Reed, I got a good recommendation today, and it refers back to something you recommended a little while ago. I have been listening to the first two episodes of a very new podcast called The Dropout. Hmm. Okay. So let me read the description. And the minute you pick up on what this is, you interrupt me. Money, romance, tragedy, deception. The story of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos is an unbelievable (sighs) tale of ambition and fame gone terribly wrong. Hmm. Yes, they are actually doing a podcast. ABC News is doing a podcast about Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. And I know you read the book. Well, listen to the book. I don't read much, ironically. But, um, <laughs> man, that is like an absolutely bizarre and crazy story. That's cool. I just made a note on my little pad here. So I have to go check that out. If you want to know about Theranos and you want to know about what happened with the woman that was once called the next Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. And is now spending 20 years in jail. (laughs) Listen to the Uh, dropout. (laughs) So great. Such an interesting story. I am recommending a a band, maybe maybe their newest album, not necessarily the band. Well, I mean the band too, I guess. I'm a really big fan uh, of a band called Need to Breathe. Kind of a folk, softish rock kind of sound. Really cool. They've been around for, for quite some time, but their most recent album uh, they actually went on a, an, an, an acoustic tour, put out an acoustic live album, and so the the show the 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 songs are not all from the same show, but they're from you know probably a dozen different performances. Some really really great stuff. Anyway, there's twelve uh, twelve tracks. Uh, Need to breathe acoustic live volume one is the album, and of course you know you can buy vinyl and all that kind of stuff on their website, but. Download it on iTunes. Uh, probably my favorite song on there is, uh, well, there's actually quite a few, but I really like Cages. And what they did with this particular album is they they left in all the commentary in between the songs and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. And so you get some interesting kind of backstory and stuff like that around some of the, uh, the songs. By the way, for those of you who may be listening to music on Spotify... It's also on Spotify, so definitely worth giving a listening here. I'll put it next to my queue to listen to. Their yeah. Acoustic Live Volume 1 album. And if you've never heard of them, you'll recognize a few of the songs you, you, from some different TV commercials, of course, and things like that. So anyway, Need to Breathe, Acoustic Live Volume 1. Well, very cool. Another great week, another great episode. Uh, again, thanks for listening. If you've got ideas for upcoming shows, let us know. If you have or know of smart people out there that we should talk to, uh, let us know that as well. Let us hear from you is the, is the main thing. So we love, love interacting on LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, all that kind of good stuff. For uh, another week, uh, another hour, that is Chris Boyer. I'm Reed Smith, and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.